every generation of parents, right, is trying to just not do what their parents did to them. And I think for me, I've come to a place where I haven't felt that shame in a long time. And a lot of that is who you surround yourself with and the things that you do that make you happy and, and build confidence in who you are as a person. And that's kind of been me. Like I, I've, I've had to find a sense of worth and confidence in myself and value in myself that, you know, had to use quite a bit to get out of that kind of shameful feeling. But, you know, design and art and those things, music especially, like those are all things that I think have really helped me figure out who I am and, you know, where I want to go. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking to Chris Fry, Global Creative Director at SmartWool. And before we get into my conversation with Chris, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. Better yet, please recommend this show to at least one friend you think will like it. And maybe even one enemy who will like it. It's time we bring the world together over the common love of the Baby Got Backstory podcast. Today's guest is Chris Fry, Global Creative Director at SmartWool. And I'm going to let you know right now, we don't talk a whole lot about SmartWool. That's because Chris took the conversation in a wonderfully raw and fascinating direction. Chris has had the opportunity to lead concept, design, and experience for some incredible brands like Oakley, Wheel Pros, Head, Scott Sports, Coors, Eddie Bauer, Punchbowl Social, and The North Face. He is currently the Global Creative Director at SmartWool, which is part of the VF Corporation. And as you'll hear, he describes himself as a freelancer, a failure, a startup, and an agency executive. He's worked brand side, agency side, and more often than not, somewhere in between. Chris says in his words, I'm in love with the magic of ideation and storytelling, but also believe that nothing is more powerful than a well-planned strategy. This is a brand pro and marketer after my own heart. And I've known Chris for years. We've worked together in the past, and I didn't know about 95% of what he shares in this episode. And this is his story. I am here with Chris Fry, the Global Creative Director at SmartWool. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. Really appreciate it. And as we get into the episode here, like, what is a Global Creative Director at SmartWool? Like, what, what does that mean? Thanks for having me. Great question. Well, essentially, I... Um, I'm a creative director at SmartWall, so I um, essentially uh, drive all of the marketing materials, uh, marketing materials, 
storytelling efforts, branding, really kind of drive the purpose and values of the brand globally. As you know, our brand is mostly US focused and based. You know, we are growing in some key markets, uh, specifically Canada, Europe, EMEA. And so my job globally is to make sure that the brand um, is not only consistent, but compelling in all of those regions and, and work with kind of different marketing teams within the regions to kind of help them, you know, keep consistent and, and make sure that kind of those brand values and that purpose for the brand is really driven home at every communication point. Yeah. And just so our listeners know, and I'm sure about 99.9% of them are familiar with SmartWool, but in case they're not, I want you to just give us a little uh, kind of blurb on who and what SmartWool is. Awesome. Yeah. So SmartWool uh, is a uh, apparel company. So uh, it started in the sock business. They were the first ones to make uh, merino wool-based performance socks in uh, Steamboat, Colorado. And for 26 years, they have been kind of crafting and uh, recrafting and, and kind of uh, growing into other spaces like apparel and accessories and, and really kind of taking this merino wool expertise and this knitting expertise that came from socks uh, and then growing that across many categories, base layer, mid-layer, um, finding every kind of which way you can twist and knit wool. Yeah, and you know that makes me feel dated because I remember when smart wool was like a new novel thing, you know, and right, right. merino merino sport socks were like this this crazy new concept, and uh, now here we are, twenty six later, I haven't realized it's it's been that long. And let's get back a little bit to this uh, description of global creative director because uh, before we move past that, I I really want to define that a little more. Like, what's your what are your days like? I mean, are you sitting around? Is that the way? that I like to imagine the fantasy that you're in some studio and you're uh, splashing paint and you're ripping up paper and you're, you know, mocking up things, or is it, is it something completely different than that? Well, I can be honest. Some days are like that for sure. Um, you know, ideating, generating ideas comes from all kinds of different spots, right? Whether that be gathering inspiration from books. Um, but um, my main objective is to lead a team and inspire them and to help them solve larger brand problems. Um, I also work very closely with uh, the head of global marketing um, to really kind of define the, the strategies um, that kind of, you know, the, the strategies that essentially kind of define not only the campaigns, but, um, you know, all of the kind of go-to-market product stories that we're gonna tell seasonally. Um, and so I work quite a bit with uh, the product uh, development team, as well as our design director, Sujesh, who really runs kind of the product design program. Um, she's essentially kind of my my peer and partner in crime to really kind of, at every angle, make sure that the aesthetic of the brand is coming through, um, storytelling, those kind of bigger product thematics um, and, and consumer insights, uh, how they're kind of really driven into the product, as well as into all of our marketing efforts. and then. Yeah. So a day like today, you know, I'll start off with a, you know, uh, kind of a team leadership meeting, I guess, with, you know, a group of folks that uh, I brought on to kind of help work on the team in a different way. So writers, art directors, designers, and then, you know, might slide into a strategy meeting um, to really kind of define how we're going to be uh, brief certain projects. And, and then I still take a pretty hands-on approach to the work. So Sometimes I'm, you know, blocking out a couple hours on the calendar to, as you say, like rip up paper, get creative, 
get inspired. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes, you know, it's larger leadership things. Um, right now we have some kind of fundamental brand things that, uh, we're developing, um, specifically around kind of identifying our design target, um, who they are, what motivates them, um, and, and really kind of trying to drive this idea of being uh, consumer, uh, and digital first for Smartwool, right? Um, Smartwool is a brand that has largely been, um, wholesale driven. Um, and just with the changes, you know, even before COVID, right. Uh, the world of wholesale is changing. And so we're trying to identify ways to really support our wholesale and specialty partners and uh, make sure the brand and, and that brand love is being generated and resonated from those partners, as well as, uh, taking active active look at strategically, you know how we how we bring more digital activations to life, so we can really grow our brand and bring you know new consumers to it. And so you and I have talked about this before. You've mentioned it several times, just in that last uh, that last uh, reply, talking about brand and brand aesthetics and storytelling. And so you know that those are all topics that are near and dear to my heart. Like. Like, why is it important that your almost entire focus is is on on that? Like, why does that matter? I think there's a, a, a for me a bunch of different reasons. Like, I, I think I don't know. I think brands have an opportunity to to do some pretty powerful and meaningful things um, beyond just selling products, right? Um, I think there's opportunity, especially with you know culturally the sea change that is happening for brands to, to have a point of view, right? And I think to to become more than just kind of valuable products, right? And um, and and stories are really kind of the key driver for the for identifying kind of those connection points with consumers, right? But I, I do think it's, you know, for me, I don't know that brand that balance of branding and consumers and how they interact, I think is like one of the greatest like sociology experiments that I just like (laughs) love and nerd out on. And I don't know why, but um, I find it fascinating, right? Like it's an experiment, like this interaction and this back and forth and um, sometimes breaking out a little bit of a crystal ball and doing some guesswork, having some data to throw in there. That's, you know, foundational elements to help guide the creative uh, to, to come up with that brand right message that just connects with people and hopefully inspires them beyond just purchase, right? It inspires them to to join a community. Um, and for Smartwool specifically, right? It's it's one of our main goals is to to get people outside, right? It's it's not about what you do outside or how well you do it. We just think there's this beautiful inherent thing about nature, and our products, you know, not only provide protection, but they also provide comfort. And hopefully, those things, you know, are are we like to say like. Our main job is essentially to ignite transformative moments for our consumers, right? And, and that should come through in product and our communication. And to me, that's why branding is important because it sets a path and a tone that everybody can rally behind. And hopefully our customers and consumers feel that, you know, there's nothing like throwing on a snappy new pair of socks. And, you know, when you pull that toe over and you snap that smart wool logo over the toes, that to me is a transformative moment, right? You, you feel all of the innovation that went into the sock that you may not be able to see. You feel the the power of natural materials. Um, and, you know, that should give you this sense of you're taking really good care of your feet by making, you know, this purchase from this fun loving brand. Right. So very long winded answer to your question as usual, but 
I don't know. There's just so many powerful elements that I think brands have a responsibility to really drive with with consumers. And and I think there's a lot of brands doing some really cool stuff and activating in cool ways and opening up conversations and exposing communities to things they've never seen before. I think brands are inspiring. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, you described yourself as, as nerding out on brand and the social experiment. I agree. I think it's just this incredible dance. It's always changing. It sometimes is maddening because it's so fickle, but that's what I think also uh, keeps us coming back for more. You know, it's never, it's never static. And so uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I actually grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Not, oh I haven't gosh. moved too far from home. Yeah. Colorado native. We don't, we don't encounter those very often, not just on the baby got Big story <laughs> podcast, but just in, in real life, except this next generation, like all our kids will be, be Colorado natives. But as you were growing up there in Littleton, Colorado, I mean, did you know that you were going to be drawn to this, this idea of branding and even in a broader sphere being a creative? I don't think I knew about, you know, or wasn't, I wasn't really attracted to brands or branding until maybe I'd say high school, junior high school level, right? Like before that, you know, didn't matter. It was just whatever I could throw on to go ride my bike um, and get outside. But being a creative for sure, um, I was always into art and drawing and painting, you know, and that junior high moment was like, I always, I mean, my buddies always talk about like junior high, I feel like is used to be this defining moment where you're either going to be go down a good path or a bad path, right? And start experimenting a little bit like that seventh, eighth grade. And I chose, you know, to, to try some, some things in my life, uh, at that moment. Right. But I was also introduced to a totally different world that took, you know, drawing and painting to another level of expression, right. Um, music changed, art changed. And, and I think skateboarding and finding skateboarding in that community for me essentially changed my life and made me really recognize brands and what they stood for. And, you know, I started to kind of badge and, you know, with the little money I had, right, could could adopt these brands because they meant something and, and they said something about me. And so I might not have recognized the power of them then uh, or that I would want to pursue, you know, that as a career. But art has always been a part of it. Being creative has always been a part of it. You know, music has always, you know, been a key part of my life. I'm a failed musician many times over, right? Like I'm, I, I would love to be able to play the guitar. I've tried many times and failed, right? But it's something that's always been like a underlying current and, and powerful inspiration point forever. Well, and you and I share that in common. I have multiple guitars that I've purchased uh, throughout the years that I've you know, that I've started playing never successfully as well. And I've got a nice little collection. So we got that going and as well. And I don't know if this is my bias. I don't know if it's um, who I tend to know, but there really does seem to be this interesting thread through uh, the creatives that have been on the show that have all um, uh, have gotten to a really great point in their careers where they were really uh, inspired and informed by skateboarding. And then, you know, in another layer of that being music, uh, that's come up a lot too. But I mean, what do you think it is about that skate culture that lends itself to, to being this, this foundational uh, either community or just inspiration for, for creatives, especially those, you know, of our generation? Yeah, I mean, 
for me, uh, it was this idea of self-expression and just, I don't know, being a totally unique individual. Like I felt that come through with, you know, every one of my favorite skateboarders, every one of the skateboard brands, right. From the artists they chose to, to do the graphics, to the colors, to the way they treated logos. Right. And that attitude was something that me and my group of friends tried to personify in our own way. You know, everybody had it was like intentionally was, you know, trying to cut their, their own style. Right. Like I came up in like the uh, early nineties version of skateboarding, which was very much like uh, cut off ultra baggy jeans or going to thrift stores and buying, uh, you know, 40 size pants when I was like a 28 waist and they're massive, but I would cut off the bell bottoms. It wasn't quite like Genco, like Genco level, you know, like the rave style jeans, but there was this DIY customization, like self-expression, like thing that just was artistic and kind of weird. And, and I think that also kind of aligns to the punk rock scene and that, that DIY spirit of carving your own way and having a voice and not being afraid to, to express yourself. I, I, that was very liberating, right. Um, for me. And I don't know, it was just super influential. I think part of it too, was also, you know, what the environment I grew up in skateboarding was this pivotal thing that happened. Um, and that I got to experience and that was mine. That was just a very different than what I had at home. Right. It was an escape for me too. And I think for me, that's what it was. I know for my group of friends at the time, right. Like that's what it was for them too. Uh, we had our, we had our own community that we made, right. We could do, and talk and be ourselves in that little bubble. And it felt like a safe space that was ours to own, which I, I, I really, you know, think is because of skateboarding, you know, I don't know if that was ever anybody's intent that got on a skateboard, but they've been reinventing it and doing it for decades. Right. Like, and that's another thing that I've always loved about skateboarding is they always find a way to dip back underground, come back out with a new look feel um, that's unique uh, to the culture uh, in that moment, you know, and I, I, I can't think of another sport activity, you know, or movement that has been able to do that decade over decade over decade, you know. Yeah, and neither can I. And so, and, you know, at that age, in addition to skateboarding, like, how, how was school going for you? Were, you? were you a good student? Or did you have any sense of where you were going with, with yourself? Uh, not at all. I was a terrible student. Some of it by choice, some of it by, yeah, most of it by choice, right? Like I, I, I kind of picked the things in the moments that I wanted to pay attention to. And, you know, in high school, I was trying to think, yeah, in high school, kind of had my core group of friends and, you know, we, we were all into skateboarding and we kind of did our thing and I wasn't very good at math or, you know, uh, proper English. Um, uh, I'm still terrible with grammar. Um, <laughs> thank God for copywriters. Um, but, um, you know, I think those are the things I just didn't love and appreciate and I didn't put a value set to them, but art I did, right. I took every photo, uh, photography class, every drawing class, and I did really well in those classes. Like you know, my dad used to always be like, you're like a half straight A student, right? Like, cause I'd get perfect grades in all of the art classes and then every other thing I was failing out of. But, you know, that was 
that it just was like what I glommed onto and I loved. And again, I think a lot of it just felt like a, a, a an avenue of expression for me more than anything. Right. Um, and I had some really supportive teachers in my high school that, you know, saw some talent in me and nurtured it and supported it. And I just kind of kept on this art train and, you know, I had another very influential high school teacher. Um, uh, his name is Bill Stow. He's, he was just a rad dude. I had him freshman year for, I forget the name of the class, but English 101 or whatever. And, and, uh, he was so cool because he got us into creative writing in a very cool way. Right. We'd have to write in journals. And at the beginning it was like, Oh God, here you go. First 10 minutes of class, right. You got to write in your journal. And, and Mr. Stow was like super into music as well. And so he'd always put on music, but it wasn't just like, Oh, I'm going to put on, you know, some top 40. It was like, he was, he was playing Pearl Jam when like Pearl Jam was new. He was like, and so every kid in the class was like, fuck yeah, this, this is amazing. Right. And he just was this cool dude. And, um, he, I learned a lot from him and I actually had a chance my senior year, <laughs> the only AP class I had was AP English. And Mr. Style was like, I remember you from freshman year, even though you haven't been that successful. Like, I think, you know, this would be a good class for you. And, um, I love that class and he changed the rules. And that's what I loved about it too, is it wasn't about curriculum to him. It was about, my goal is to make sure that you are expanding your brain as a young man. And so he'd be like, I, I want you to do the curriculum stuff. You're going to get graded on it for sure. He's like, but what I really want you to do is read. And, um, he had this deal. If you read so many pages, essentially it would, you know, um, take over what you didn't do in the curriculum. And so I was like, this is amazing. And so I, I adopted reading and he, he would, you know, do these kind of book report interview style things, but the books he was giving me were insane books like catch 22 catcher in the rye, you know, those kind of standard ones that are like coming of age, great stories. But then it got into like, I don't know, cosmic banditos and some weird shit. And then he got me into uh, the basketball diaries and just some counterculture stories that were very real and gritty and raw. And like it was super inspiring to me and it opened my mind up to like things I had no idea existed. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've read the gym, like basketball diaries by Jim Carroll, but like they made a movie of it with Leonardo DiCaprio. But if you ever get a chance, go on Amazon, order the book. It's fucking astounding. Like what was happening in New York his artistry and who Jim Carroll became like, it's just like, I don't know. It's a period piece that is just iconic and resonates with me, but I don't know. I think maybe that ultimately helped me crash this love of art and design and the visual language with storytelling, right? Like that I would have never found that without Mr. Style. Yeah. And so at that time, I mean, did you have a sense of what was next? I mean, were was Mr. Stow and your your parents were they like oh hey like you should go I mean what were they saying or what was your thought what were we going to do after high school yeah I mean Mr. Stow he was a, the kind of guy that was like oh he was kind of like I'll support you with whatever you want to do right and I really had no idea um that I wanted to pursue anything in kind of the you know advertising marketing branding world at all um I knew art was something I was talented at um and wanted to pursue I, you know, um, ended up 
you know, wanting to go to art school. My parents, on the other hand, right, like they, uh, I come from a, a pretty religious, strict religious background um, that I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, essentially until about my junior year in high school. And I decided I wanted to smoke weed and date girls and have friends outside of the church. And, you know, that didn't vibe with my parents uh, too well. And so, you know, by that senior year, I was a, a bit at odds with them. Um, and I had found all these really cool things and was starting to figure out who I wanted to be personally, right? Outside of the parameters that had, had essentially contained me since I was, you know, a young child. And um, and so I felt like art school was like my thing. And um, they were supportive for sure, right? They were glad I had chosen something. They wanted me to, you know, apply my art to to the larger church group and, and help the church group, which, you know, um, was their goal for everything. And, and I wanted out. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. So I applied to a ton of art schools. I ended up um, getting accepted to a few of them, including uh, Al uh, the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary and spent um, essentially a summer. I went up there, visited the campus. It was awesome. Like I remember just being you know, a high school kid and walking through this campus and <laughs> going down these stairwells and they were filled with graffiti and they were like, oh yeah, this is like the graffiti one-on-one class. And I was like, oh fuck this, like, this is, this is it. You know what I mean? And, um, I was there with my dad and, and he was super into it. And I had, um, I'd gotten a scholarship to go there, an international student scholarship. And so I was primed and ready, but, um, you know, I was also not a very, um, um, I wasn't very good at the details when it came to that stuff. And so, um, I applied, got the scholarship and I essentially messed up my visas and my applications for the visas. And right before, um, I was going to go there, I was informed that I had lost my scholarship and I was, and I could apply again next year for the same scholarship and they would kind of have me in. Right. And I was pretty heartbroken at that point. And so, I don't know. Do you want me to keep blabbering? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think at that moment, I, my biggest goals were to somehow find a way to make art a job. And also part two of that big goal was to get as far away from Littleton, Colorado as possible, um, which Canada had all the right things. So we're going to come right back to that, but I want to talk a little bit. I want to just learn a little bit more. Like, you know, you, you use the, uh, the phrase or the term, the description Jehovah's witness. And like, I'm sitting here thinking like, I don't really think I know a fish. Like I couldn't tell you, I couldn't describe that back to you. And so, uh, if you, if you could like, like just kind of give me the one one like what, what is that? And, 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 and how did that affect you as in, in your upbringing? And I also find it interesting as you, as you describe this, that, you know, you, you spent some time talking about and describing being involved in the skate culture and, 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 and getting into music, all these things that yet you have this other influence from, from your upbringing. And so, yeah, if you could just kind of give us the one-on-one on Jehovah's witness and, and what it was like uh, for you uh, growing up in that environment. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's the best way to describe it? It's a, it's a Christian based, um, religion and, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty large and growing religion, but essentially the way most people would know them by, you know, Saturday and Sunday mornings, you hear the kind of knock on your door and, and somebody is, you know, trying to, um, get you involved in 
reading the Bible, uh, having a study group or, you know, try to, to kind of get you involved in that religion, right? That's the most common thing. And you've probably seen it Saturday Night Live, all kinds of, you know, any comedic effort, right? Like that's always the, the, the joke around Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but, you know, that wasn't, you know, I grew up, I was kind of born into it. Essentially, I, I had the opportunity to celebrate my first birthday. But one of the big belief systems uh, that the Jehovah's Witnesses have is, is around making sure that all of your kind of focus and energy is around paying tribute to, to God. That includes, you know, not worshiping yourself. So there was no birthdays. All common holidays were not celebrated. Let's see. Yeah, it was, it was essentially, uh, it was cult-like in the sense, I don't want to call it that right, because I don't really believe that. Um, I think the people there, my dad is still participating, right? Like they're very kind uh, Christian-based folks. And I think that they just are very disciplined in their belief system, right? And I, for a long time, you know, was at odds with my dad because I just didn't understand it, you know? But for him, it was it was his truth. It didn't work out for everybody else in my family, essentially. And I was kind of the catalyst for that change. But um, for him, it's it's what he believes in and he loves. And I've come to, you know, to terms with that. And we kind of have a agree to disagree, right? I think the, the fundamentals of that religion are rooted in, you know, truly the teachings of um, the Bible in the sense of kindness and taking care of your fellow man. And their approach is to try and bring as many people into that, you know, you know, into their community as possible. They do that by knocking on doors. But, you know, for me, it was always so restrictive. It, it was, I mean, we, we, we would go, you know, um, knocking on doors Saturdays on Sundays, we'd be at church. We also would have church Tuesday evenings and Thursday evenings. Um, and then mixed in there were, you know, Bible studies. And it was just, it was always, since it's Groundhog Day, I'll just call it, right? Like it was Groundhog's Day every day, but all based on, on the same ideals and the same belief system. And as I was, you know, getting into skateboarding and all of those things and developing friendships, right? Those are all no-nos inside of the church, right? You're, you're supposed to hang with your community because everybody else outside of that has different views that potentially will drive you away from the church. And for me, that was always like a weird thing. And it always like rubbed me the wrong way to a point that it created a, it created defiance in me, right? And it was a was a perfect storm of me being at that age and and pushing back against whatever all the normal things you're supposed to push back as a teenager, but also having this like governor on your life your whole life, right? And I wanted to experience life. I I wanted to experience friendships and adventures and art and music and culture and skateboarding and all of these things, you know. And they were the exact opposite of what my father's house was supposed to be. And so for a majority of my high school life, I would, I would probably say I, I lived a double life. You know, I'd go to school and uh, I'd be one person with my friends and then, and then I'd come home and, you know, would tamp all of that stuff down, you know, and it was hard. And I remember, you know, we'd always dress up in suits and ties on Saturdays. And that was always like the hardest day for me. I remember because my dad would be like, okay, well, you know, let's go get our community hours in and, and, 
and, you know, do right by the religion and try and go knock on some doors. And it was a gut-wrenching feeling for me to go into a neighborhood where I knew my friends lived and to be there next to my dad knocking on their door. And I just remember being so anxious, right? Like just waiting, waiting for that moment where I make eye contact with somebody I knew from school. And then just thinking in my head the whole time of like, oh, the, 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 <laughs> the, the teenage terrorism that was about to take place on when I got back on Monday. And anyways, long story short, that I think that had a lot to do with, I don't, I don't know, my, my love of, you know, skateboarding and, and the idea of a counterculture and the idea of breaking free. Like, I don't know. That's why I, I like what I do now because it's, it's unadulterated freedom. Um, and I think there's power in that, you know, it must be really hard. A, I, sorry. I just took it deep. That was great. That <laughs> and, and it, and it must've, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, it must have been really hard living with that that secret that at any moment, like, you could get busted. I can only imagine it would even be intensified by being like, hey, I'm this cool skate counterculture guy. I mean, that that's a big contrast, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that was, it, you know, and I was never, at that age, you know, I, I kind of took it to the limit I could take it to, right? Like, definitely identified as a a skateboarder. I identified with a certain group of kids, but you know, there's no way I was, you know, bleaching my hair or no way I was, you know, getting anything pierced or, or going to, you know, a level of, uh, extremism, I guess at that time. Um, there's just no way, there's no way my, I could handle the consequences when I got back to the, to the house. And also the jig would be up, right? Like it was one thing to wear baggy pants and a skateboard tee that I picked up at BC Surf and Sport that whatever had a funny character on it that, you know, my mom thought was cute. It's another thing to come in guns a blazing and, and not have, you know, a job, not that my dad would ever have kicked me out, but I'm, you know, I, I grew up as you did in that generation where, you know, corporal punishment and spankings were a real deal. You know what I mean? Like I met the, backside of mini wooden spoons and leather belts and at that age like i was just trying to find my way and so i was trying to find the best way i could survive to a point you know it all it always bubbles up at one point right like the it always comes out you know and it took a while you know until i had some real freedoms of my own right like i was driving i could i had a job i could spend my money the way i wanted to spend it and that's when the the uh <laughs> that's also when cowboys from hell by pantera was out and like full aggression just was like boiling inside of me and and that's where you know the the kind of first set of my push to my own kind of set of values and freedoms really you know came at odds with my dad's point of view you know and my dad was a he's a very kind man still is to this day right and i can only imagine the torture I put him through. Right. Because I think he was just like, man, I, I just want to, I just want to love you. And this is why I'm doing this for you. And I like blasting Pantera every night when I get home and, you know, bringing girls over and smoking weed and like, yeah, sure. Fucking whatever. It's not a proud moment, but it was my moment. And, but eventually it essentially caused the 
uh, collapse of you know my tenure as a Jehovah's Witness. They have this thing in the religion where you know essentially they call it uh, being disfellowshipped. So essentially, if you whatever break the rules of the community, or if you're identified as somebody that is you know not living up to the standards of the religion, then they disassociate you, which is a weird thing as a 16 year old to think about. But I was disassociated, essentially like you're allowed to come to the to the church as much as you want and pray and work on being a better Christian, but uh, nobody's allowed to talk to you. Can't can't convene. You're kind of the like, you know, the people at the higher ups are allowed to kind of talk to you, but it's mostly about, you know, how you're coming back to the to the religion. Outside of that, like I wasn't invited to anybody's family picnics or barbecues or I was I was at home and you know my family would go do that without me which was fine by me at the time to be honest well it sounds a little heavy I mean was that was it fine or was there like some shame involved in that oh I'm sure yeah I'm sure there's some deep-rooted shame in me right but I don't know like I think I've now that I'm kind of in my 40s, I feel like I, I have a sense of who I am and what I want to be, right? I have my own kids. And I think that shame has has helped me actually, um, you know, hopefully not fuck them up and protect them from <laughs> making sure that, you know, that they don't feel that same level of shame, right? I think that's, I mean, it's probably, it's cliche to say, but it's cliche because it's true that every generation of parents, right, is trying to just not do what their parents did to them. And I think for me, I've come to a place where, you know, I haven't felt that shame in a long time. And a lot of that is who you surround yourself with and the things that you do that make you happy and, and build confidence in who you are as a person. And, and um, yeah, and I think that that's kind of been me. Like I, I've, I've had to find a sense of worth and confidence in myself and value in myself that you know had to use quite a bit to get out of that kind of shameful feeling but you know design and art and uh those things music especially like those are all things that i think have really helped me figure out who i am and you know where i want to go you know what i mean uh, absolutely again you know thank you so much for sharing that i think that you know, I was going to say you, you were worried about not fucking up your kids. I was like, hey, you know, newsflash, we're all we're all messing up our kids. So uh, it's it's just how much. And so we try to try to minimize that. So we're doing our best we can. But at least know, it won't be shame that I get them. Right. I'll fuck them up another way. But <laughs> give them a different emotion. Right. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at 
www.wildstory.com, and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. You know, kind of coming back to Calgary. So in in, uh, Alberta School of Art, you had missed your deadline. You'd missed the scholarship. Did you end up getting to go there the, the following year or what happened? Uh, no, um, I did not. Um, so I decided, all right, cool. Well, I'll come back to Littleton and, you know, I'll get a job for the summer and then I'll essentially reapply, um, for school and go back to school. Well, that kind of didn't work out because I started waiting tables and, um, I don't know if like if, if anybody's ever seen that movie waiting with Ryan Reynolds, but like every fucking moment in that movie is a hundred percent accurate and i worked at multiple restaurants and it's literally the exact like it's it's so true the characters are so true but go watch ryan reynolds waiting and that'll kind of describe the next kind of uh, year and a half of my life right was waiting tables and and then you know my mom happened to actually work she was working at the energy group back before they were owned by omnicom and they were essentially like had two clients um, and it was, uh, who was it? Coors, like, well, they had Coors at the time and then they had, I forget, another kind of client, right? But they were kind of this, you know, advertising agency that was originally built out of Coors Brewing and then they kind of broke off and became integer and their, their biggest client was Coors. And my mom worked um, in the merchandising department which is essentially like the crew that comes up with all the rad chosh ideas that are the giveaway stuff. So like the inflatable couch that you got after buying, you know, so many packs of Coors Light. Like, so um, my mom was like, she was really creative and it was awesome. And, you know, this was kind of her first, I guess, like after having kids and kids going through school, like job, right? So first like full-time corporate kind of cool job, right? And so it was cool. So my mom actually got me a job at Integer. And my first job at Integer is they had just built a new studio um, that was on the back of their building. And it was kind of separate from the main hub. And so they had all the art directors, writers, um, and kind of conceptual people on one side of the building, count people shared that building. And then the studio folks um, that were doing all the you know, CG stuff and all that kind of stuff were in this back building. And (laughs) this is my favorite thing. There was, it was maybe 50, 50 yards across the parking lot, but they had decided that it was really complicated for people to run job jackets. This will date me a little bit, but job jackets are like in the advertising world, they're these huge plastic jackets that essentially have the brief in the front sleeve. And then at this at this time, everything was printed, right? So you'd have every round of revisions, all the notes, all the copy editing notes, and they're all bundled together in this pocket of this like giant blue, I remember them being like powder blue folders. And so uh, my job, they gave me a pager, which was cool at the time. Um, They would page me um, and I would call and they'd be like, hey, it's such and such art director. Can you run this job jacket over the studio? And essentially that was my job at Integer. I, I ran job jackets all day back and forth between the art directors and the uh, essentially studio design team. But that's when I found it. That's when I was like, so like, I don't know, like maybe one day in between a lot of pages, I was like looking around and I was like, wait a minute, like, what do you guys do here? Like what, what's going on here? 
And, um, and I saw like, and met and had a lot of people that were just super cool and nice. Um, there's a dude, Jason Wedekin, I think everybody knows him. He's like, he's a rad dude, but he owns this print shop called Genghis Current Design for him. Jason's like, awesome but he he worked there um when i was there and he was like one of the dudes that was like always down to just chat me up right like i'm i was 18 something like that i don't yeah 17 18 anyways jason was like cool dude and he was uh he was do he would do freelance projects for all these up-and-coming breweries and he'd be like yo don't tell anyone and like i'd go to the printer and help him like grab the, the he'll probably kill me. Uh, maybe not it's been so long he's not getting fired again so but Jason was rad, but he exposed me to this really cool world of design. And at that point, it was kind of still in its, in like the starting phase, right? Like we're talking about Photoshop and illustrators, like not very high on the version list, right? Like we're definitely far from creative cloud. Like, um, <laughs> but, you know, watching, I used to just sit in his cube and other folks' cubes and just wrap and watch them design and watch them be able to like take their drawing or their concept or their idea mold it and sculpt it and then use type and like build cool shit like labels and uh advertisements and i was like damn this is badass i i i had found my thing and yeah i was still like waiting tables at night and then like running job jackets back and forth but it was at this kind of integer group that i really and this is back like when integer was still pretty small and it was very different it still had a bit of that mad madman culture right like it was also our biggest client was beer and so they'd have these rad parties and like big announcements and it was just a bunch of really cool people and that was kind of when it all clicked in and um i was like i want to have a job you know as an art director i want i want to do what these guys are doing and there's some really cool people that really helped me get there tom pounders was another dude legendary art director in denver um and he was like super old school ad guy. He didn't really know how to use all of the computer stuff. He was still drawing, right? And all of his concepts were illustrated and like, but he had really cool ideas. And I just remember sitting in his office and like, he would just like blow my mind. And another dude, Matt Hawley, who was like killer designer, typographer, like, I don't know. These like, I don't know. There was just a ton of really good people that had no problem helping me excel teaching me the programs um showing me how things come together um i i guess i was kind of like the whatever <laughs> the orphan of integer studios right and they would like all help me and teach me things and and it was really cool and yeah that's what i decided that i wanted to do and as i kind of moved up um within the studio right like they asked me to start doing you know studio production work which at that time they were still pre doing presentations on kind of black boards, right? So my job was essentially to uh, take the stuff out of the printer and build their presentations before they'd go pitch a client, right? So I got very handy with an exacto blade and a ruler and perfectly mounting all these art boards. And then it turned into like building mock-ups. So, hey, can you make us a 3D version of this, whatever, beer dis in-dial display, right? And so I build it out of paper and they'd take it to a presentation and and then they started kind of giving me some projects to work on um like junior art director level projects and uh yeah i i did a lot of work on the zima brand if you remember zima 
Oh, I remember Classic. Xena. Yeah. Totally. How could you not? Iconic, right? And I remember like at that time, Shepard Ferry was like all the rage in the skateboarding world. And I straight ripped off the not pixel for pixel, but I essentially ripped off the idea of using stencils, right? To create these Zima out of home boards. And um there's another uh woman there, Monique Van Ash, who actually has a really cool studio in Denver now. She was also like so rad at like helping me, but she used to give me projects too. Like, Hey, do you want to do a flyer for this event going on? It's Coors Light sponsored. And, and, um, she'd be like, here's your inspiration. So she'd give me these like mini briefs for these small projects that were just fun to work on. Cause it was like, Oh, cool. Make a, you know, five by seven flyer and you can use any style you want. And then she'd critique it. And I don't know, it was just a really, at that time, it was a really cool place to like learn from these, like, really talented people that were totally open-armed in teaching me anything I wanted to know. And the only crux was, uh, you know, I didn't have a college education. (laughs) And um, I remember uh, they were like, well, you should just put your book together from all the projects that you've done over the years. And I was like, oh, cool. So I put it together in my book and I went and talked to, at that time, I forget what his title was, but, you know, chief creative officer, I guess would be the contemporary title right now. But when I sat down with this gentleman and um, he was super cool, super positive about my work. He loved everything. And essentially he was like, I can't hire you. You need to have, you know, I think you need some you know, formal training and, you know, foundational elements of design and, and, um, and art theory and all these other kind of things. And I was like, Oh shit, I was heartbroken. Right. And so Sorry, I'm just talking, Mark. So you're going to have to just tell me to shut up. <laughs> Never. Keep going. And so what happened? I mean, did you go to school or did you tell that guy to to go uh, pound sand? Well, I did tell him. No, I didn't tell him pound, pound sand. I was, I was thankful for, you know, his critique. And um, he kind of helped me lay out a clear path. And so I pivoted from there and was like, okay, I'm going to go back to school. And so... I had some friends that uh, were already enrolled in um, Montana State University in Bozeman. And I had some family in Billings and my cousin went to MSU and well, essentially like some of my best friends from high school were there. And I, you know, I, I kind of was flying by the seat of my pants because I was like, I just need to get a college degree so that I can get a job, you know, doing this thing that I love. Right. And I didn't really look too hard at the, you know, the programs that they had at MSU, um, lucked out and, you know, they had a really awesome art program. Um, and so I kind of enrolled and was, you know, starting to uh, pursue a degree in, um, fine arts and, um, it was going really well. I was living in, uh, Bozeman and, uh, taking advantage of all the cool outdoor things that Bozeman has to offer, right? Like ripping Bridger Bowl and, um, riding bikes. And essentially it was like, there was, uh, I think there's six of us living in a three or four bedroom house. And I, since I was the last one to join, lived in the tough shed, um, in the back of the house, I had a full size Malamute and two large space heaters that got me through winters. And, um, it was awesome. Cause I, I built like a little loft in there and did art and worked on my stuff. And then as much as I could, you know, went snowboarding or hiking or was just outside, right? Like Bozeman. And at this time, Bozeman was still pretty small college town. Now it's blown up and, and 
a little bit different, but it was it was a really cool place. Um, and then one Christmas break, I came home and uh, I started working over the holiday break to make some extra money and back at Integer. So the studio manager, uh, studio she made, it was awesome. Um, reached out to me. I was like, hey, like you want to do work part-time while you're home from school and like you can whatever help us with some studio projects and i was like yeah totally and um i just got super into it i was like doing cool projects again and like i don't know i really loved bozeman but i just like had this burning desire to just like jump as hard and as fast as i could into learning what i wanted to do and so i just never went back to school um i went back that summer uh, to see my roommates and essentially pack up my tough shed. And uh, my dad actually had a trailer. So he helped me trailer it all back. Um, and I was like living back at home and working at Integer. And um, did they ever hire you full time there? Uh, they did. Uh, I was kind of studio production manager. And so kind of that job evolved into actual need. Right. And so they, they had a lot more projects that they needed copying and mounting and building and and so I kind of turned it like they turned it into a job essentially based on the needs. And at that time they had, I think been bought by Omnicom. I think my mom was still working there that time around. Yeah. My mom was still working there. She'd been there a while. And um, anyways, like it was cool. I like was working in this hub of essentially like art director central. And I, how was that? I was like 21 about this yeah, 21, I'd have to be. Anyways, about that age, right? And so now I could actually take advantage of all those parties that I couldn't before when I was younger. And so it was like this whole world, another whole world opened up. And then at that time, um, when I came back, Integer had landed Airwalk um, as a client. Um, and uh, Matt Hawley uh, was kind of the lead art director. And then they had this new dude that had just moved to Denver named Jeffrey Bice. Um, he'd moved from California and he was like this, it's hard to describe. Like he is just this fucking infectious, awesome design focused dude from California that just like kind of came in and was a bit of a wrecking ball at integer, right? Like they were kind of developing this corporate structure and he was this dude that was just like, like blow through barriers. He was selling these amazing campaigns for all these beer brands that were like light years ahead of other work that was being done. And anyways, for me, I, I really was just like, Oh my God, and Jeff and I hit it off and he asked me to do a bunch of projects for airwalk. And so I started doing a bunch of stuff for airwalk um, specifically on like the genetic skate brand, which is like a sub brand they had built at that time. And um, like, you know, Matt and Jeff kind of really encouraged me and I was really authentic to that culture and knew it really well and could help um, kind of bridge the gap from that like agency world to to that airwalk endemic world and and then um yeah and then uh, that's when I met you know some critical characters in my life that you know as well and anyways so that thing happened anyways that relation dissolved dissolved right like the airwalk couldn't pay their bills um, <laughs> to the agency and so they essentially got fired by the agency. But that also created an opportunity. Um, Jeff, who I mentioned before, was asked to move in-house to Airwalk. He offered me a job and I jumped at it. And um, yeah, at this time, Airwalk was in Genesee, 
And I was the kind of in-house graphic designer for Airwalk and started working on all kinds of fun projects that were right in my wheelhouse and passion center, right? Like Airwalk, you know, at that time was not the iconic brand it once was, but it was definitely picking up steam. They, you know, uh, had brought on some critical players that became, you know, critical pieces of my life from that moment on, right? Um, Mike Arts, one of them, shared mutual friend of ours, right? Like Arts was the <laughs> snowboard marketing manager at the time. My other really good friend, Randy Kleiner, uh, who was uh, kind of the charge of snowboard boot and board development. And so that's kind of where I started as a graphic designer. It was like in this really cool kind of fading, iconic skate, sur- uh, skate surf, snow culture brand, lifestyle brand, right? And um, I was embedded in the brand world in a very cool way. Yeah. And we, we know that, you know, Airwalk had a little bit of an untimely demise or a sudden demise. And so, you know, after that, where'd you go? Well, that, that untimely demise, I lived through that. I mean, essentially, a lot of folks, unfortunately, got laid off and they essentially kept 10 of us uh, to kind of push the business into a licensing model where they were essentially licensing the the rights of the brand out. And um, that's where I really kind of developed a relationship with uh, Randy Kleiner. And from there, you know, um, as we were working on this licensing structure, it became Collective Licensing, which is another company which owned a ton of different brands, some snowboards, a ton of different kind of Lamar snowboards. They were just buying up these really iconic action sports brands and then licensing them. But um, that's where I met Randy. Um, and a few other great folks, Mark Batelli, um, and Jeff Weiss was still there. And, and at this time we were doing a ton of like consumer insights as a licensing brand. So we were trying to identify trends that were happening in the marketplace around footwear, specifically sneakers. And so part of our job was to essentially do trend reporting. So they would fly us to Miami, San Francisco, New York, LA, and at this time, you know, sneaker culture was this very kind of small counter subculture that was just starting to to brew, right? I remember the first time I went to New York and went to A-Life Rivington Club. It was the small, no signage place where you ring a doorbell, somebody like slides over a curtain, looks you up and down, checks your sneakers, and then they let you into this like amazingly crazy boutique selling retro Jordans. And then there were some other ones that were there, like Dave's Quality Meats and some of the iconic uh, kind of ones. But it was a small bud of a culture that was happening on the coasts, essentially, that we were kind of influenced by and, and driving some of those things that were happening on the coast into these trend reports for all of our licensees in different countries to be able to say, hey, you know, these kind of materials, these colors, this, this tone from an advertising perspective is is going to be a hit for you as you look at the whatever spring line and product and as you design for your audience right so that was really cool too because it helped me really understand you know taking what consumers were doing and how they were adopting things through products and retail and then being able to take that and then break out a bit of a crystal ball and and use it as a way to uh inform Um, other designers on how to develop product and communications. And so from that came an idea as we kept coming back to Denver um, that Denver might be ready 
for its own sneaker boutique. And so uh, Randy Kleiner and I um, left, uh, excuse me, Airwalk, and we started a, a little boutique here in Denver, all based around sneaker culture and marketing and design. And so we we started off Tenth uh, and Bannock, and it was intentionally this uh, kind of off the beaten path, like up and coming neighborhood in the Golden Triangle of Denver, and we were going to sell limited edition sneakers and create essentially a culture around sneakers in Denver. What happened? Uh, it was fucking awesome. It was like the best time of my life. It was amazing. You know, it was hard um, from a business standpoint. Like Nike didn't even have a rep in Denver at this time, right? Like that was selling the type of sneakers that we wanted to have and to be able to sell and to build this community around. But we had some other really cool brands and um, we created this really cool cultural thing in Denver, you know, and we had really awesome friendships with like-minded people and that were also had kind of all these small businesses. And, you know, we used to throw parties and um, we used to have an art gallery out front, which was a really critical kind of marketing strategy for us, right? It was this idea of, well, we're part of this First Friday movement in Denver. People are out looking at art. Like, let's bring this kind of lowbrow art style um, to this sneaker culture. And let's expose some of our, you know, some of the, the Denver artists that we love to our new store and vice versa. The audience that is following them will know that we're here and probably find some sneakers that they want to pick up. So we used to have these incredible art shows with, you know, some really fun, awesome artists and made some insane relationships and felt like, you know, we were contributing to a new culture in Denver. Um, and it was probably the funnest five years of my life. But it also, yeah, but it also sounds <laughs> like, uh, you didn't make any money or didn't make enough money. Uh, no. so, so what happened to that business? You had to wind it down. Um, yeah, I mean, we actually were successful, grew the business. It was, it was good. I mean, I think, you know, for Randy and I, we, we were paying ourselves what we needed to survive, which is enough because, you know, we had faith in what we were doing and, and eventually it was going to, you know, keep getting bigger. And we opened, you know, a couple of different shops in different neighborhoods of Denver, specifically, uh, I guess, I don't know what it's called now, but essentially where the Rambo hotel is right now, God, like 30 second of Walnut. Anyways, where that Billy's hot dog is, that used to be the second 400 location. We were there, I don't know, five years before that neighborhood fucking blew up, but it was cool. So we opened that neighborhood. We had a whole, or we opened up that shop. We had a whole different uh, style of sneakers there. And then we ended up closing down two stores and going to build a store off 15th and Platt. This whole time we were also doing, you know, tons of design work and marketing work and consumer research work right so essentially our business attracted like the most exclusive social set in the denver community and so we had brands that would come to us and be like hey can we do some you know product shopping with your crew can we ask them like they used it essentially as a laboratory for them to gain consumer insights based on you know this you know new consumer type and this new trend in limited edition sneakers and um streetwear and, and it was awesome. So we were doing all these insanely fun, freeing projects, had this really cool business. But yeah, I mean, 
the economy took a dive, right? This was when the, the I guess, the whatever, the whole thing kind of went out. And, you know, Denver, you know, was just a beginning marketplace for this kind of, you know, limited edition culture. And so, you know, we, you know, weren't able to convince people that they needed to buy $200 pair of shoes instead of pay their rent. And so we made a choice to kind of, to kind of close it down. We, you know, that's at this time, I think I was about to have my second kid, Sam. And, you know, we didn't have an insurance. I had no adult things in my life at all outside of my children. That was the only thing that qualified me as an adult. And so Randy and I, you know, bittersweetly, you know, like had to kind of uh, close her down. And I would say, you know, Randy took took the the brunt of it, right, as the kind of head business owner and majority owner. And, um, you know, I, I thank him a lot for that. I mean, but he was also... He's older than me. So, uh, you know, as my big brother, he, uh, whatever helped guide that situation. And I believe it or not, went and took a job at Integer again, third time around. And, um, let's see how short do you need me to be here, Mark? Do you uh, need to tighten it up? Yeah, we do need to tighten it up. Yeah. You can just kind of bring me, bring me up to speed. All right. So here's, I went to Integer for eight months. Didn't really love the culture. Didn't feel like I was fueling ideas the way I wanted to. At that time, I was kind of super corporate. And so at that time, um, you know, I got a call from uh, my buddy Josh Wills and Steve Whittier at Factory Design Labs. And so they asked me to come work at Factory Design Labs, which was awesome. I was there six years, worked on a ton of really iconic, fun brands that became kind of the foundation of my portfolio and my knowledge set, specifically, you know, in the outdoor space, you know, the North Face uh, we did a couple little projects for vans, um, but my main focus was working on the Oakley account. And, you know, from there, like I went from, you know, a senior art director to a VP creative director in that six year span and did some really fun, iconic work with some really awesome people, you know, Scott Sports. And and then, um, you know, Factory, much like Airwalk, kind of went and had some issues and ended up closing down and um, at that point, you know, after kind of running, running, uh, you know, six years of laps at factory, I was toasted and didn't want to, you know, work necessarily in advertising and I was going to just freelance. And so I freelanced in my basement for a bit, um, which was rewarding, but hard and was also kind of working with, um, capital goods as creative director on a few accounts and, um, that was, you know, about eight months and I was still so, I was just burnt out. Like what happened at factory was really shitty for me. Like I had to lay off a lot of people that I cared for deeply and valued and being put in kind of this VP creative director role, just the stress and the amount of like <sighs> things I was exposed to from like the pressure standpoint at that age and at the same time being like, oh, well, we didn't get enough new business or whatever. We this this other thing happened, right? Like having that at that level for me was difficult. And that shame thing, this actually might be where it comes full circle, was really hard for me when it came to laying off my friends, you know, like saying goodbye to people that I really respected for all the wrong reasons, right? Shit that wasn't their fault. And it was like a weekly thing. And it became this like thing that just like poisoned 
me for a little bit. I just felt so gross and guilty and I blamed advertising for that. And so I had always kept in good communication with um, uh, Scott Bowers, who's now at Sparwoli, the VP of sales. And when he, when he called me, he was uh, VP of sales and marketing. And he used to be a client at Oakley and then (laughs) worked at factory for a little bit on new business and we'd always stayed in touch and, um, and, uh, you know, Scott reached out and said he had an opportunity at Smartwool and that was the fast 10 minute version. Sorry. No, <laughs> I'm perfect. very long winded. No, but, it was great. Um, that's where I'm at now. Yeah. And so what's the future look like for Chris Fry and Smartwool? I, I'm really kind of excited. I think, you know, Smartwool as a brand started out kind of really around the product. And, and that merino wool performance sock and, and that knitting expertise. And, and I think it never really kind of um, did some of the foundational work um, that brands have at the at kind of their disposal now, right? Around consumers and design targets and, and some of those critical elements that will help them, you know, drive, um, you know, beyond just being product and being kind of a beloved brand. And, that's what I've been spending a lot of my time really on is like helping develop those tools with the team and implementing them. And I think our future is super bright. I mean, I think we are primed for taking on the next 26 years with, uh, you know, focus and a unique set of values and, and really kind of just driving our purpose to, to, to an audience, um, you know, that's, that's growing, which I think is really cool. Yeah. And, and as we come to a close here, Chris, you know, I want you to think back to that, that version of yourself that was knocking on doors, nervous that he might, <laughs> that he might see one of his friends and just get caught and, and kind of live in this double life. And, you know, if, if, if he ran into you today, what do you think he'd say? Oof. I don't know if he'd say anything. I think it'd be more of those like confident head nods. That, that like quiet shared expression of like i don't know like i know what's going on you know it's that like it's the little bit of the the wink i don't know if he'd have anything to say i think he would just be a shared moment of understanding yeah pretty sure <laughs> and that is chris fry global creative director of smart wool As you know by now, I let Chris go on and talk, but only because I thought his shares and stories were gold. I couldn't stop him. Not because I didn't have the ability, but because I didn't want to. I was so amazed by his journey and wish we had about another two hours to talk to Chris. I've already started talking to Chris about coming on for another episode to get further into branding, storytelling, and creative direction. Look out for that one. A big, huge thank you to Chris Fry and the Smart Wool team. We will link to all things Chris Fry, also known as K Fry, and Smart Wool in the show notes. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, just like Chris, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. Until next time.
Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 